welcome to a brand new episode of Seize the Moment podcast. And today we have a very special guest. Today we have Dr. G. Neil Martin. He's an honorary professor of psychology and former head of psychology at Regents University in London. He's a life fellow of the Royal Society of Arts and an associate of the Recreational Fear Lab at RS University. And, he's an, and he has written around 13 books, including the introductory textbook, Psychology, Psychology, a Beginner's Guide, The Neuropsychology of Smell and Taste. And his newest book is called The Psychology of Comedy. Uh, welcome, Neil. Thank you, guys. Happy New Year. Crikey, that was a very thorough introduction. Uh, you, sure, <laughs> you sure you're not a private detective? Uh, <laughs> Honestly, yeah. I, got, I got most of my information from Amazon, but... Oh, fair enough. Yeah. Yeah, we pay we pay them enough money. Fine. Okay. So to begin, Neil wrote in his book, a reasonable question to ask is given how common and ubiquitous comedy and laughter are, what are their purpose? What function do they serve? Some, such as Fry, have argued that laughter makes no sense in evolutionary terms because we are expending energy unnecessarily. Other views hold that humor has evolved to promote social bonding, facilitate cooperation, prevent pursuing counterproductive initiatives, signal non-threatening behavior, to signal a desire to initiate or maintain social cooperation, manipulate, manipulate status, resolve errors in a positive way, attract a mate, or signal an awareness that the user shares similar attitudes and preferences to those that they are interacting with. Mm -hmm. So let's consider one of the most basic cognitive forms of humor and comedy, the joke. So I love that. And it, for me, it sort of encapsulates everything, or at least some of which, you know, I don't want to say maybe everything, but some of which sort of laughter and joking is sort of used for. And, you know, oftentimes when we're joking, we think of it just like this one thing or this one sort of element, which is in terms of happiness. We think, okay, jokes are just really just meant to make other people happy. You know, so like Alan and I will watch comedy shows, we'll tell each other jokes, whatever, right? So the, the sort of un, kind of underlying belief is that, okay, we're doing it to make our friends friends laugh. But what I love about where this book goes is it sort of takes these different kind of elements, right? The good and the bad, and it pieces them together. And it says, no, no, there's much more to it than just making people happy. So, you know, I want to get into some of the darker elements of joking, but can we actually start from some of the good stuff? So besides happiness, right? In terms of like, in terms of evolution, in terms of uh, kind of social cohesion, can we talk about some of the purposes of joking and essentially how they foster them? Yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, the good news is I think that was at least 12 lines, which means I get a fee. So <laughs> thank you, Leon, that's brilliant. Um, <laughs> well, I, I don't, I don't know. Do um, so the, the, the explanation for why we laugh and why we find things funny and why we use humour. I mean, there, there are competing theories. There are about 88 different theories of, of laughter and, and humour. And each of them addresses, you know, this feeling in a sort of slightly different way. Some of them try and explain why we laugh. Some of them try and explain why we use humour. And some of them then explain why we laugh at certain types of humour. So what you've got is you've got this, this huge phalanx of theories. But in essence, you can sort of boil them down to about four different categories. Uh, and they sort of cover some of the things you've said. We could look at the dark aspects of humor in a second, because one of the main theories uh, called superiority theory or disparagement, um, uh, a theory of disparagement humor is very much uh, addressing why do we use humor to belittle others and to establish and assert our own superiority over others? And mm. it is one of the oldest theories of humor and laughter. I mean, it was originally proposed by uh, Plato in Philebus uh, and later Aristotle. I mean, they had some very uh, caustic, noxious views about laughter and why people use laughter. And um, th they argued that we use humor in order to um, separate us from an out group. 
So it's we use humour to establish uh, our own presence, our own superiority, and to belittle and to minimise the importance of uh, an outgroup or a, a minority. So at the core of it really is um, a very aggressive, spiteful, dominant approach to, to the use of humour. And you can see that working in a lot of comedy and some would say most jokes and all of satire. You know, all of satire is, is designed to ridicule the vice and folly of the times. And it normally means ridiculing and minimizing uh, and poking fun of um, somebody in a position of power or somebody who has control over you. So there are positives to superiority humor as well as the, the negatives. I mean, the negatives, of course, are we use humor in order to belittle, say, minorities. Um, and if it's used in a prejudicial way, and the most common joke structure format, you know, for this sort of, um, that will illustrate this sort of, uh, this theory is, um, you know, the typical structure where you have, um, how do you get a X to do something? And the X is normally the target of the joke. And it could be a minority, could be a culture, could be a sex, could be a nation, could be a profession. You know, lawyers are are a very popular butt of uh, many jokes. Uh, hmm. Just to give you one example, I, I won't give you an actual target. I'll just insert um, one in parentheses. Um, so a typical joke would be, how do you get a one-armed X um, out of a tree? Wave at them. <laughs> the idea is that they're so stupid that the only way they could come down from a tree if they've got one arm is to wave and then they'll fall and they'll hurt themselves. You know, that's the core of that joke. Now you can insert into X whichever uh, outgroup you want to make fun of. Uh, and it works for any outgroup that you would, you know, despise or, or disparage. So um, that, that's the sort of negative side of um, using sort of superiority um, humour. Um, and it's, although it has its roots in ancient Greece, I mean, it's, it's I think, premier proponent was a mm. 17th century philosopher called Thomas Hobbes. And he, uh, he referred to it, he referred to the realisation that we are superior to others as the sudden glory. So he, he described uh, the use of humour in this way as establishing our own sense of importance and effectiveness, uh, while at the same time recognising other people's infirmity. So it's a way of making... Um, ourselves feel better about ourselves so that's sort of one uh, theory of humor which is superiority there's there's another major one there are four of them i won't go through all four unless you want me to uh, one involves freud so you could probably park that because it's well lovely. we can actually go, we could go through them one at a time and then just okay, focus on them. yeah so we're, we're at superiority yeah I was going to say it was largely nonsensical the freud stuff but if you wanted hmm. it to be about freud, I'll talk about freud. like shot and freud shot freud yeah, that's very mm -hmm. good. Yeah. Just, make a note of uh, that one there. <laughs> Thank you. I'll use that later in the lecture. So the second <laughs> um, dominant uh, theory is um, the incongruity theory. And this goes back to um, Cicero. And, you know, Cicero said that we laugh at things when we see two things that don't necessarily go together. Um, and this, I think, has been one of the more popular um, theories of, of comedy because quite a few philosophers have taken that idea and sort of fashioned their own different variants of theories on it. I mean, Schopenhauer is one and Kierkegaard is another very famous one. And they mm -hmm. argued that we laugh at things because um, we see the reality conflict with what we think is real. Mm -hmm. uh, and because we've got that, you know, paradox, um, that we find something funny because these two things don't go together uh, very well. And there are loads of examples, um, you know, of incongruity. I mean, a lot of comedy is based on incongruity. Think of Monty Python, you know, for mm -hmm. example. Um, 
um, or you know, I suppose not not some of the early American TV shows, but you know some of the well, actually, Airplane, Airplane, and Police Squad, and Naked Gun. Mm -hmm. uh, make brilliant use of incongruity, you know, where you have people slapping nuns on a plane in airplane. I mean, that's a brilliant um, example. Yeah, um, or sure, surely you can't be serious, right? Uh, that is slightly more of a pun, which is sort of a slightly different thing, which we could maybe talk about. But I'm fair. thinking, okay, yeah, if you think of police squad, uh, there's a very good joke in police squad that you probably know, where uh, Lieutenant Drebin, uh, Leslie Nielsen, um, comes across a man in a house and says to the man, who are you and what are you doing here? And the man replies, I'm a locksmith and I'm a locksmith. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. so it's, it's incongruous because you think, oh, okay, that sort of makes sense. And why is he responding in this way? But it also, and I'm not sure if it's the delay because of Zoom, but it, it, working out that joke actually takes a bit of time, which is another element of um, the appreciation of jokes that psychologists have looked at, which is what cognitive machinery do you need to put into humor in order to understand humor? And jokes mm. do rely on a great deal of understanding of lots of things, including theory of mind. You know, you have to put yourself in the position of somebody else. Uh, working memory, because you have to hold information in mind before you get to the punchline. And often it's the punchline that actually gives you the joke. So you have to keep so much information in mind before you get to the, you know, the conclusion, the the climax of the of the joke, and you find it funny. And um, to give you another example of this, it's a very old joke. It's one of Bob Monkhouse's, but people have adopted this to to their own um, acts across the years. And it's it goes something like this: It's um, I want to die peacefully, like my grandfather in his sleep, not screaming and terrified like his passengers. <laughs> That's good. Until you get to that last word, you don't know where this is going because the first line, the, the predicate, is oh, fairly innocuous, very natural. You know, right, right. you will die peacefully like your grandfather. Okay, that makes sense. Mm. And then it gets a little bit weird with terrified and then screaming. And then, of course, at the end, you get the passengers, and that's when you get the jokes. So you have to keep all of that in mind, understand mm. all these people being mentioned you have to know what a grandfather is you have to know what screaming is you have to know what passenger is and then you have to get the joke and that is he's either in a train or he's in a bus and the joke is you know um rather bleak and, and black at the at the, at the end um mm. so that's a segue into the cognitive mechanics of um uh, of comedy so incongruity uh the the example i often use in lectures is there's a cartoon by pilbrow and I mentioned it in the book, and uh, the cartoon is this, you've got two firefighters and they're in front of a cat with a tree stuck in its anus. And one firefighter says to the other firefighter, well, I suppose at least a tree up a cat makes a change, you know, because normally you get a, yeah. a tree rather than a tree <laughs> out of a cat. So mm -hmm. that's pure incongruity. Um, and just to give you one more example, which, which you may not know, but if you haven't heard of uh, this sketch, then do seek it out on YouTube because it's worth seeking out. Um, have you heard of History Today, a sketch mm -hmm. series on Newman and Badil in pieces? So mm -hmm. do British comedians uh, David Badil and uh, Robert Newman mm -hmm. um, had a sketch show. And in this sketch show, they had one sketch, which was a televised conversation debate between two very dusty, uh, doddery old academics, dons, very Oxbridge. And they were sort of made up, you know, in graying hair and, and they looked really old. And it begins in the sort of, it's, in the sketch series is called History Today. And they're introducing this 
show called History Today. And they start off discussing some extremely arcane, you know, extremely obscure bit of history or um, social theory. But then it degenerates into name calling, like childish name calling. And it normally ends up with one of them saying something like, well, they refer to a particular historical figure and they describe that historical figure in some detail. And that historical figure tends to be rather unpleasant. You know, they may wet themselves or they may defecate in their trousers. So there's a catalogue of bad things about this person. And one says to the other, um, you know this person. The other character says, I'm familiar with his work. And then the other person says, that's your mum, that is. <laughs> so, you know, the whole sketch is childish bickering between two old men. Uh, the incongruity there is that you have, you know, what should be two very respectable academics discussing things in a very dry, very arid way, um, not doing so because they're basically like school children, you know, <laughs> calling each other, um, you know, their uh, uh, nasty names. So um, incongruity is the so the other major uh, theory of uh, comedy actually just going back to superiority for a second i mean there's some sure. some argue that almost every bit of comedy has a victim in some way so right. almost all comedy in a sense is superiority establishing um it's surprising how well that works it works not just for people but for objects as well so you know joke may uh, ridicule an object or a thing or an event or whatever it doesn't work all the of the time but it's amazing if you look at some sketches and some routines and some jokes how that does fit like the, there's always a target somewhere um in a in a joke which may explain why it's you know the oldest theory of uh, comedy i suppose uh, and then the other two um they could be grouped under wait wait Niels, Niels. so oh, i just yeah. i just actually want to kind of go back to superiority because it seems like probably maybe the most important one so the way i think about it there was a famous quote i don't remember exactly who said it but he said something along the lines of like when sort of satire is aimed at power it's essentially meant for to foster change but when it's aimed at people who are the minority i mean essentially that would be bullying so that you know sometimes i think we, we struggle with that sort of knowing like when a joke is a joke and oh, no got gotcha. you punching up or punching yeah up. there we go that's it right yeah so so sometimes it's kind of hard i think for oh so I'll just speak for myself. I don't want to speak for Alan. Um, and obviously you can chime in here. Uh, so my thinking is like, you know, when I'm telling a joke to somebody, a lot of times there's kind of um, a sort of misconception, I think, between the two parties. And I'm not necessarily saying I'm right and the other person is wrong. But what I'm saying is that like, if I can kind of joke with you, right? Um, the way I kind of see it is that you're actually on my level. So when I joke with somebody, I mean, I obviously I try my best to, to kind of understand like what their limits are. But I'm my thinking is like, you're on my level, right? I don't want to treat you like a child. I joke with you because you're like me, right? You get it. You'll find it funny or you want it then you'll just say hey like this is that's just a dumb joke which is cool and then we'll move on but oftentimes i find that i get into kind of conflicts with people because they feel like i'm bullying them so i'm like wait but i don't see you in that way i don't think of you i don't think of it as punching down right because in my mind i'm like if i did think that way that if i thought that you were inferior to me i actually wouldn't have made those jokes in the first place so it's kind of interesting how people how sort of you have these two different perceptions i i think what it is is there's actually a few variables that come into play there uh, neil i think you would agree it's, it's one it could be the delivery of the joke, right? So maybe somebody doesn't necessarily know that you're joking. Another could just be, oh, that's just their, you know, ego. They're getting offended. Like they, they're taking very seriously what you meant was supposed to be for fun. Right. Right. And that could be more based on just their sensibilities than what it is your intention is. Right. Right. Uh, we've seen a lot of comedians, famous comedians who are, you know, just joking, right? But they could get in trouble in the news and have their jokes misinterpreted or taken very seriously. And 
I don't know. I mean, I, t I agree with you when I joke as well. It's not meant nothing is meant to be taken seriously. It's supposed to be just completely lighthearted. We're here to have a good time. Nothing that I'm saying, you're not supposed to like let that hit you or and me too. I have to follow the same rules like like comedic roasting, let's say. Right. Uh, I used to be somebody who was incredibly uh, sensitive, but I'm still sensitive less sensitive now so you're kind of an asshole these days i'm kind of an <laughs> asshole these days yeah but i'm just kidding but yeah so not quite right but anyway so a little callback but yeah so anyway uh well, to do alan basically is what he's saying yeah like the, the idea is just like if somebody's uh roasting you right essentially i mean if you take it seriously, then you you're taking the fun out of the the joking aspect of it. But if you can kind of play along, it, it's almost like you're um, engaging in sort of like a social activity with the person. Like you can show that oh he's a good sport. He can he can take a joke, and it, it almost fosters a sense he doesn't of take himself too seriously. Yeah, there, there's like more cohesiveness from that. But when somebody does take themselves so seriously uh th that could take this the the air out of a joke yeah. right and uh then less fun is experienced yeah and then yeah. so neil i would ask in, in terms of joking at the let's say at the expense of someone else or being at the butt of jokes right can that actually help to foster social cohesion and if that's the case like what would the circumstances need to be yeah it can if you want to uh get people on your side or if you want to um you know ridicule say uh uh, a political opponent. I mean, mm -hmm. the use of humor against a political opponent is very effective. A lot of research has shown that, you know, if you do that, um, people are more likely to support you uh, if you're making a joke about the opponent. It doesn't make supporters of the opponent like you anymore, but it's a way of, you know, rallying the troops, you know, in some way and motivating them. Um, this issue about, I mean, you touched on a, a really interesting um, phenomenon, which is the ambiguity of humour. Like, why are people saying the things that they do in the way that they do? And, you know, you have comedians like Ricky Gervais who would say, well, I just say things to make people laugh. But people will interpret what he says. Jimmy Carl's another one. Will interpret yep. what they say in, in a way that fits their narrative, which may be correct, but the, the Gervais defense would be, well, actually, no, I'm just saying it because I think it's funny. And I think this is where I think you have to sort of tread gingerly because you're ascribing motivations to comedians that you may not be entirely certain or accurate about. But then the comedian may also hold these beliefs, but dismisses the um, arguments about their prejudice by simply saying, I'm just saying this to make people laugh. It's just funny. And there's always a kernel of truth even in prejudicial disparagement humor, you know, there's always something in there that makes people think, oh, there's an element of that is that is true. And this person is making a joke about that element of, of um, truth, um, which is why, you know, people do make jokes about things that are um, often perceived as being off color, you know, or in some way tasteless in, in, in if you like. And I mean, I think of one, and it is, I'm not sure if it's, I'm not sure if it's tasteless, but it's a really funny joke. And it was in um, Alan Zweibel's autobiography. You know, Alan Zweibel wrote sort of a, created It's Gary Shandling show and um, worked the young one? live and no. loads of books with Billy Crystal. Now. <laughs> and in this book, he talks about um, a comedy writer he was working with, and they were doing a list of the, the presents, the Christmas presents, um, you were least likely to give Anne Frank. 
and on top of that list was a drum kit. Mm-hmm. Right? right, right, right. The last thing you you'd give somebody hiding from mm-hmm. the Nazis in a loft mm-hmm. is a drum mm-hmm. kit, because mm-hmm. if you play a drum kit, you'd be fine. You know, so there there are things like that. I mean, there's an element of truth in it because you think, oh my giddy up, you know, this this is a person who is escaping Nazis in in Holland and. You know, it, it could be perceived as a terrible joke because you, you may be making fun about somebody fleeing persecution. Right. But in a sense, it's quite it's a funny joke because of again that incongruity. It comes back to incongruity again, I suppose. Um, so you mentioned the roasts and sort of Ricky Gervais and all that sort of stuff, and whether you making a joke about somebody and that somebody takes offense. I think this is where you need to be careful about the use of humor, because what they've done with with you, at least, um, Leon, is um, committed a fundamental attribution error mm-hmm. you know so they're attributing things to you that may not necessarily exist i think that you believe those things about them that may not be true whereas your intention may have been different you know you were you know, saying this joke to you know raise a laugh or whatever it was but they took away something different from it and this is why human comedy can be problematic um, that people will read into uh, the comedy that you use in different ways depending on who the object of the comedy is and who the agent of the comedy is as well. So if you heard a joke from, say, a well-known racist comedian, mm-hmm. then you can probably be 99% sure that that joke is not meant in a positive, you know, supportive way. It is meant to demean an outgroup, whether it's, um, you know, a culture or, or a nation. If it's said by somebody w- without that hinterland, you know, somebody with, with a reputation for not using racial humor or sexist humor or whatever, then it can seem a bit ambiguous and therefore you have to interpret it depending on you know your own background and your own sort of narrative. I mean, often it's it's quite clear cut. I mean, it, it's never that ambiguous normally, uh, but it does happen. And this is why, you know, comedians get into all sorts of trouble, you know, sometimes by anger that is confected, you know, maybe confected by the media because, you know, the media needs attention and therefore they will, you know, um, they will disparage a comedian for saying things in a particular way or take something out of context, um, mm-hmm. you know, which is, a, you know, a yeah. well, so one thing, sorry, Go for so actually on that topic, um, do, do you think there's any actual utility to uh, poking fun at the things that we find most sort of sacred or, or even things that are, for example, like even in the Anne Frank example, right? I mean, uh, you could you could argue that adding some lightness to a horrid situation may take the the darkness out of it, uh, so to speak. That might not be the comedian's intention, but there could, you could argue that utility. Um, Ooh, I actually have something to add to that. That's so interesting that you say that. So here's why. So what I was thinking, like, so we know how I just told the story about how, like, you know, kind of there's a difference between the way I perceive things and how the, you know, the person who's the butt of my joke perceives them. So sometimes what I do is I have a conversation with that person and I say something like, hey, when I'm making fun of this flaw, I want you to know that the way that I think of it is is not anywhere near as severe as you think of it. So to me, it's a very minor flaw that I'm just picking at because I'm like, it's just funny to me, right? It's a funny thing. I see the flaw and I'm like, oh, ha ha, right? So I try to tell the person that doesn't 
doesn't disqualify you in my mind. I'm not sort of trying to belittle you or make you feel bad about that flaw. All I'm doing is essentially trying to get you to see it as an insignificant thing as I see it as an insignificant thing. So it's kind of like, I think what you're saying too, right? If you're taking this joke about, or you're making this joke about this really serious event, you're not trying to devalue it in the sense of telling people like, Hey, you know, don't feel bad about it, but it's to say like, Hey guys, we can kind of start to like tolerate it or live with this experience now. Right. Yes. Is that it? Okay. Yes. Yeah, yeah I, I think you're right. And it comes back to intention. Yeah. So what is the intention of the joke teller? And then it, it then it comes down to the interpretation of the receiver. And there are lots of things that could influence that, including their personality, their situation, their mental status, even what they've just been exposed to at the time. You know, they may have read some terrible story about some awful tragedy in the newspaper. And then you may make a joke about somebody being run over by a train and they may take offense to that because they've literally read this horrible story about you know somebody being run over by a train so this is context is so important in in this uh, this context with the yeah. with the, the sort of the Anne Frank joke I mean it's interesting because you know Zweibel himself is is Jewish but what I take from that is distance because that event is at such a distance that you can rise above the horror of it you know mm. the horror of the Holocaust and make a joke and I think that is what could be perceived as being difficult because it's as if you're saying, well, you're making fun of a thing. Whereas if you genuinely thought about that thing, you probably wouldn't make a joke about it because of the horrific circumstances in which, you know, Anne Frank found herself in. So I think that distance gives us a sense of being able to use comedy, which if it was sort of nearer to that period, you know, of the, the Second World War and the atrocities uh, and so on, then that joke would not have been as funny. That said, though, I mean, even in the Second World War, you know, a lot of soldiers uh, would engage in gallows humour. Um, on you know both sides, both the Allies and the uh, and the Nazi side, and it was a means of you know what's called um, um, emotional anesthesia, mm -hmm. you know, way of coping with the, the, the I mean the horror, the the, the the atrocity, you know, you're having your friends and colleagues you know being bulleted, having their limbs maimed, having their heads blown. Uh, let alone all the other, you know, well-known atrocities that we we're very familiar with in terms of extermination and so on. So it, it was using humour as a means of of coping, you know, in that sense. Um, and the Anne Frank joke is completely divorced from coping. But I think it does show, you know, if with distance you can make jokes about things that you necessarily wouldn't have been able to have made um, jokes about before. I think. Uh, are you aware of? Uh, oh, sorry. sorry. I was going to say, Alan, just because you were talking about you know, using humor in like a social context and somebody maybe taking offense, maybe out of turn because you didn't mean offense. Okay. It, it it's also comes down to one of the uses of, several of the uses of humor in day-to-day -day life because evolutionary psychologists have argued that there are at least eight or nine different reasons why we use humor and laughter more importantly in social contexts. Like, you know, when we talk to each other, you know, and they're, they're, they're various, but there's, what you might regard as typical. So it's to put people at ease or to want people to like you or to sort of oil the, you know, the machinery of social engagement or to be not perceived as a threat. Mm -hmm. We use humor sometimes to, to break the ice, to make people like us, but also to make people think, well, look, you know, if you talk to me, you're going to be talking to a very reasonable, sensible, approachable person and not some absolute, you know, lunatic and some wingnut that you should run a, run a mile uh, away from. And if you look at the research on conversations, it's interesting because there was one study that looked at the number of humor attempts 
in conversations and discussion groups. And what they found was there were at least 13 attempts at humor in a mm. typical conversation. And mm. each person would make at least two attempts, you know, to you know, either say something funny or to crack a joke. And the these attempts would be more common at the beginning of a discussion and at the end. So these, you know, humorous interjections sort of bookended maybe what was the more serious discussion in the middle. And I think that is interesting because one, it illustrates icebreaking maybe at the beginning and don't be afraid of me, don't be threatened because I'm rather, I'm a pleasant individual. And then at the end, it's like a conclusion. It's like saying, well, let's leave this exchange on a positive note by, you know, um, um, elevating the conversation into something light-hearted and I think that sort of research is interesting you know our use of humor in 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 groups but going back an hour ago you asked me that question um you know, <laughs> it depends on your intention and the interpretation of the other person and often that interpretation could be wrong of what your intention actually is and that's why you have to be careful with uh, you know when you joke and who you joke to because yeah know your audience yeah and tell your audience. Thank you. Mm -hmm. you just summarized what I've been going on in, in that. So thank you. My work is done. Thank you, Jones. <laughs> what were you going to say? Yes. Oh, uh, well, now since we're actually here in this room, I'll, I'll keep to it. I was going to ask something different. But um, actually, yeah, in the context of a, of a lecture or I suppose like a teacher teaching a class, uh, would you say that using comedy would definitely help maybe the students or the audience in general to sort of appreciate or listen more um, attentively to the lecturer or teacher? Does that actually do anything? Does it make them take the teacher less serious uh, or, yeah? Yeah, actually a couple of things, Amalyn. One, that is a, a brilliant question because mm -hmm. there is some research on it. So I can I can tell you what the research says. Secondly, I'm, now I'm really curious to know what you were going to ask before <laughs> that question. Oh, okay. Fair enough. All right. So I was, I'm curious, uh, are you aware of uh, Alan Watts by any chance? Uh, uh, he's a, uh, uh, so he's a Eastern philosopher. He brought uh, from the UK, he brought um, East philosophy to the United States and he, he did this lecture. Um, it's called the Joker. Uh, it's like a three hour long lecture. It's on YouTube. It's from the sixties and all no, that. Uh, in the, film. the film is terrible. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, unlike the film, though, no. So he's no, he's great. He's great. Uh, so there's this one thing he he talks about this uh, concept or something called the role of the fool, like uh, kind of like a like a king who had a jester and the the role that that jester would play in the king's court. So I had a quote, and I guess I'll, I'll begin to read it. But uh, so it says here. So the worst kind of criticism is the one who pokes fun. The Joker doesn't outrightly deride things. He's not a slapstick comedian. He gives people the giggles about things they thought were terribly sacred, and that is extremely demoralizing. The fool standpoint is that all social institutions are games. He sees the whole world as game playing. That's why when people take their games seriously and take on stern and pious expressions, the fool gets the giggles because he knows that it is all a game, not a mere game or mere entertainment, but it's also not uh, frivolous. So that last part is not necessarily relevant, but the idea is, yeah, uh, I found it very interesting that, that that is kind of the function of of the comedian uh, in our society too, no, to, to poke fun. I mean, yeah. That's the key of satire. You know, it's, yeah. it's pricking pomposity. 
you know, it's looking at some ludicrous um, artificial context, realizing how ludicrous and artificial it is, whereas people around that context take it very seriously. But you can see how ridiculous it, it you know, it sometimes can be. Um, and, you know, whether it's presidents or your boss, um, you know, sometimes that's the role of the joker in that context is to, you know, maybe say things that the other people are too afraid or maybe too polite to to say. And I mean, that sort of jester um, idea, I mean, has flown through the history of comedy, especially from post 1500s, because um, up until about the 18th century, I mean, humour wasn't used in the way that we use it now. I mean, mm. humor was used in a very disparaging way, in exactly that way. Like, you know, the court's fool, the jester is somebody to be belittled and to me they're not taken seriously. Why? Because they're a fool. You know, the clue is in the in the name. Um, mm. When even um, Aristotle, you know, um, referred to, you know, people who use humor as, you know, absolute fools. Um, but then that shift changed. And then humor sort of pivoted to wit. And it was at that point in the sort of 19th, 20th century that humour and wit began to be seen as not things to be, um, you know, themselves ridiculed and demeaned and not taken seriously, but were regarded as being actually the, the, the apogee of intelligence and of intellect and, you know, worthy of respect. So it's interesting how our view of comedy, you know, has shifted throughout history and, you know, the jester is a very sort of big part of that. Going back to your lecture points, <laughs> Um, there, there was a study, uh, I think it was at the University of Massachusetts, uh, which found that about 80% of lectures included mm. some form of humorous content. And um, it was usually, uh, and I think they looked at how frequently humor was used as well, you know, throughout, say, the course of an hour lecture. And they found that there were at least two or three attempts at humor per minute. Um, um, in in one of those uh, lectures. Now the mm. research on it is very interesting. The research suggests that if you make a lecture entertaining and engaging, students are more engaged. And that's a good thing you might argue. There's another point of view that says, well, you know, lectures aren't about entertainment. They're about transmitting information and helping people, teaching people to learn things. And sometimes uh, that is not easily or effectively done by means of, of humor. So there's that view as well. So then you ask, well, what is then the effect of humor on their learning? So they may enjoy the lecture more, um, but do they learn more? The research on it is very sparse, but there was one very interesting study. There was mm -hmm. um, uh, a study of one term of statistics and introductory psychology where one group of students was taught that course with added humor added humor you can imagine what the sort of humor would be given this is an academic study mm -hmm. but anyway. and another group didn't have any of that sort of humorous introduction and then they sort of you know they sat an exam the students sat an exam at the end of the term and what the researchers found was that those in the humor condition actually performed better mm -hmm. in the exam at the end uh, but this research is very rare I mean, there's not much work on it there is some work that suggests that adding humor to something makes something memorable. So you can remember things better because they're funny. And mm. one of the best real life examples of this is adverts. You know, so um, adverts to, to help you sell things, a lot of the memorable ones are normally quite funny because there's, there's a joke or it's based on a sketch or uh, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's the sort of issue of whether 
student thinks that the tutor shares the same interests and personality. Uh, and we did some work on, on this with colleagues at uh, University College London. I mean, the, the idea is called homophily, which you probably know, and that is we're attracted to people like us. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if people have the same interest as us, they'll be more likely to like them and, and so on. Yep. And what we found was that um, students did prefer lecturers who were very similar to themselves in terms of extroversion and openness to experience. But they didn't like um, tutors who were high in what's called neuroticism. You know, mm -hmm. Lecturers who were quite anxious and quite anxiety prone and so worried uh, a, a lot. Um, so they, they, the students do like lecturers who are like themselves unless they're neurotic, which is interesting. They also don't like or, or they appreciate less lecturers that use disparaging humour that is irrelevant. And that's the other key thing. So lots of studies have found that you can use humour and that humour can have beneficial effects on learning, but the humour has to be relevant to the topic. So it can't be irrelevant. So you can't talk, make reel off a, a music anecdote about a dinner that you had somewhere and it's unrelated to the topic of the the, the lecture that you're, you're giving so the research does suggest that um, if you use humor judiciously and wisely and appropriately then it sort of it can help learning um, and the reason for this if you want so sort of the explanation what well, one mm -hmm. i think the theory is called uh, the, the humor instructional theory you know there's always some very dull name to go with mm -hmm. these things in psychology and this argues that the reason why humor is effective in learning is because it elevates our positive frame of mind, which enables us to pay more attention to something. Hmm. Um, the interesting thing about this is that when studies have tried to test this, they haven't found this effect. I mean, they found that humor does have an effect on learning and it's a positive one, but it hasn't found it has that effect because they pay more attention to something because of this elevated positive affect. So nobody still quite knows why it works, but you know we know that it does work. Um, but as I said, there's very little work on it. Um, but what there is there, I think, is 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 quite interesting. Yeah. Well, I can tell. I, I was just going to say, I, I can tell you when I was a kid, like uh, we had this teacher in seventh grade, one of our, I think it was a science teacher. Uh, so like one of our multitude of teachers, because in the US, like every teacher teaches different subjects. So I remember I hated science up until I had him. And the only reason why I think I paid attention was, so first of all, this is, to my mind, this was the indirect connection. So he was incredibly funny. And I was like, oh my God, this guy is super fucking cool. And because he's super cool, I wanted to impress him. So I wanted to actually learn the material just to be in his good graces. It wasn't even so much that the material interested me, but I was like, wow, my God, like this guy is so amazing. And I want to raise my hand and I want to participate. And I just, again, I want to be like kind of in his vicinity in some ways. And I wanted him to think well of me. So I wonder if that's kind of like a part of it where we sort of, what we view somebody as uh, being super humorous, as being witty and cool. And we're like, yeah, you know, I want this person to really like me. And also I think Leon, a rebel, mm -hmm. because you maybe identify with that person because, oh, he's a bit more like us. You know, he's a bit more like the kids because most of the teachers are quite staid and quite stern and quite serious and straightforward. But this is uh, a person who sort of stretches the boundaries of social interaction by, you know, saying things in a way that other teachers don't. And I think you're absolutely right. It makes things more memorable. And I wonder if, I mean, I'm not sure whether, you know, most of your teachers were like that, but if he, uh, if you had a couple of teachers who were like that, they are more memorable. Yeah. Um, because as a child, you know, you're distracted by things that amuse you. You know, it's not dull. And when you're a child, you need things that are not dull to keep you engaged. And I think as a child, that does work. 
And I think it also works if you're an adult, except as an adult, of course, you're then more aware of being manipulated. So if you see a lecturer trying to use humour in a very manipulative way, like, well, I'm using humour to make this amusing, then <laughs> you, you can take a step back and think, oh, well, this isn't funny, and I'm not learning anything because this person is trying too hard. Whereas mm -hmm. if the lecturer is naturally funny and then uses that humour in a very sort of scalpel-like way to insert it into certain portions of the lecture in a relevant way, then that also is more memorable. But no, I think you're right. It's like the class clown in that case is actually the the the, the teacher rather than the uh, the boy. And it's usually a boy, by the way, class clowns yes. than girls, which is another interesting thing. You know, sex differences in humour and comedy is another big field where there's a lot of um, interesting, if controversial, uh, research. No, that's great. Actually, that's exactly what I wanted to ask about. So comedy and relationships. Uh, do do oh, yeah. men find funny women attractive? Do women find funny men attractive? Who's funnier, men or women? Yeah, because you know the belief is like, oh, men don't like funny women. Like they don't like intelligent women. Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, you know, I talked about homophily earlier. I mean, it's the research on this is interesting. The research on married couples uh, or people in long-term relationships has shown that um, if they can make themselves laugh, the partners can make themselves laugh, then the, the relationship is stronger mm. than those relationships in which that doesn't happen. So there is, you know, humour is comedy and laughter can be used as a form of social glue in those sort of uh, romantic relationships. So sex differences in humour and comedy. I mean, it's an interesting topic because, and I say it's controversial, I think it's controversial because the evidence is almost uniform. And what I mean by that is this, if you um, undertake any study and you ask people who is the funnier and who produces more humour or comedy, the, the results are always the same. Whether you ask a man or a woman or a boy or a girl, it's usually um, men and boys. So men and boys are rated as being funnier, even by women. I mean, there's one very large-scale study by the University of Aberystwyth, I think it was, uh, Gil Greengross, that found mm. that 92% of men thought men were funnier, but 67% of women also th thought that men were, were funnier. You know, mm -hmm. So women do appreciate comedy um, you know, as, as, as much as men do, but men use it, I think, in a different way. Um, and... There is, there's one idea in evolutionary psychology, which tends to be a field um, you know, that's no stranger to um, eccentric theorizing. But in this case, there's, I think, a kernel of truth to the, the theorizing. They argue that humor is a mental fitness indicator. And what I mean by that is it's a sign to a partner that they are able to be a partner. They are some, somebody that you could maybe settle down with because Humor is a sign of intelligence. It's a sign of mental fitness. And mm. there's some research to show this, um, even at the practical level. It's uh, the studies of humor production ability that have found that the ability to produce humor correlates with um, IQ scores, particularly mm -hmm. verbal IQ scores. So the, the, the higher your verbal IQ score, the more likely you are to use um, humor in day-to-day -day exchanges. Um, there's another source of evidence that is equally as intriguing, and that is lonely hearts. Or if you just ask people what they desire in a partner. And what you find is if you ask women, the top of the list, the very top of the list is sense of humor. Mm -hmm. Not goodness, not money, none of those things, sense of humor. If you ask men, on the other hand, yeah. no. Mm -hmm. um, humor is up there. It's one of the, I think the top five. But the, for men, it's physical attraction. 
not, you know, does this person make me laugh? So I think, you know, the idea that men dislike women who makes them laugh, I don't think there's much evidence for that. I mean, the research doesn't show it. It may make some men feel threatened if the humour is sort of targeted or sharp in some way, you know, because then the man maybe does feel maybe either belittled or threatened by what they then perceive as the woman's intelligence. And mm -hmm. you know, men always want to, because they're the dominant sex, they always want to feel as if they are the superior partner in a relationship usually. Hmm. Um, but what's interesting is that women tend to prioritize or uh, prefer um, non-physical attributes such as a sense of humor um, uh, which is maybe why uh, men use this uh, as a competition strategy mm -hmm. so we'll try and make um, you know a partner laugh and I'm focusing on men and women I mean this excludes you know quite a big substantial minority of the population which is you know, right. people who are binary or people who are trans homosexual lesbian gay and so on uh, where the research is limited i mean there's hardly any research on humor in those uh, groups but with um, heterosexual men and women i mean that risk um data is almost uniform and that is women admire um humor more than they do physical attributes whereas men show the opposite pattern uh, as i say and i think the reason uh, for this is that maybe it's used as a proxy for intelligence so somebody who can make somebody laugh clearly has the intelligence to do that and you know has the the cognitive ability to create something well one to create something and secondly to create something that can produce this uh, reaction so yeah. the um, yeah, so the research on uh, sex differences is 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 really interesting but you know tends to be uniform i mean that yeah. So I was going what? to say, to finish off this, this point about funny and unfunny uh, women as well, because you often hear this canard um, said by, you know, people whose DNA largely belongs to, I suppose, dinosaurs rather than the modern age, who mm -hmm. says that women can't be funny. And there was a, there was a book by David Baddiel's uh, wife, co-written by David Baddiel's wife, actually, um, called, I think it's called It's No Joke. And it's a book about female comedians. And she mentioned this to a commissioning light entertainment executive at the BBC. And mm -hmm. she said, oh, I'm doing this book on female comedians. And he said, that'll be a short book. Hmm. So there is this sort of prejudice uh, against women being funny. I mean, I think it's sort of changed now. You look at the roster of female comedians. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it's, it, it's indisputable. I think what you can say is there are unfunny women. There are funny women. There are unfunny men. There are funny men. Um, but it depends on what you take out of the humour. You know, a person who, say, would watch Avenue um, 5 or The Thick of It or Veep mm. may not appreciate sort of the sort of coarser humour that you might find in Porky's or Police Academy. Right. So I'm struggling for a sort of modern equivalent of those. What would it be? I don't know. Elf? The Hangover? I don't know. Hangover. Yeah. Well, I was thinking of Hangover and, you know, Bridesmaids. Although Bridesmaids is a very good example of female-driven humour. I mean, it made $300 million at the box office, I think, in its opening week. Very successful, you know, hmm. which I think puts to death that canard about, you know, women not being funny. But I suppose you're right. So, you know, our preference for for certain types of humour means that we like some things, but we obviously, you know, dismiss other things as unfunny. And it comes down to personal preference.
Yeah. And I was thinking in terms of like the actual comedians. Uh, so when we're thinking about just the different genders, so you have like somebody like Nikki Glaser, who's like really struggles with her dating life. And like, so to me, she's actually really attractive. Like, I, I mean, I don't really understand like what the issue is like in terms of her appearance. She always complains that like guys think she's like unappealing or whatever. Is I was you taking your shot. Are we gonna she's saying you don't find Will Ferrell an attractive gentleman. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> so yeah so my, my my thinking is that it's so interesting that with somebody like her who at least to me right is really attractive and then also super funny like she struggles on dating but then you have like comics like like the dudes who are not very appealing and they have the most attractive women like just lined up for them man and it's like so that's how you can kind of tell that yeah in terms of the way comedy works it's way more suitable or way more sort of beneficial for men than it is for women well maybe that's kind of back to the intelligence thing again because you say yeah. well Women are attracted to these. I, I suspect I don't know them, but I suspect they're not the most prepossessing looking. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, it sort of illustrates, you know, what comes out in the research is that women don't necessarily uh, prefer physical appearance over other more cognitive attributes, you know, like mm -hmm. intelligence or or humor. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, you mentioned, you know, you, you talk about female comics and some theories of humor and why we use humor. Um, and I think, I'm not sure whether you mentioned it earlier, but Roseanne Barr. Um, right. Yeah. Maybe, uh -huh. maybe it was before the, before we logged on. Yeah, I was uh, actually ready to talk about her too. Go ahead. Okay. Well, fine. Yeah. I mean, talking of, you know, using humor and using humor as a weapon. So, you know, I said, you know, a lot of humor has a victim. And in Roseanne Barr's case, I mean, it was literally true. Because, you know, if you look at her, you know, her hinterland and her autobiography, she would use humor in order to avoid being beaten by her father. Right. I mean, yeah. it was literally a survival strategy. So she found that being funny would mean that her father wouldn't punch her or, you know, take the the, the, the strap to her. And Judd Apatow said something quite similar, not as extreme, but quite similar. Because he said that when I'm on stage and I'm doing stand-up, it's not that I know that people like me if they're laughing, it's that I know that they don't not like me. <laughs> You know, so, and both of them, and, and I think, uh, oh, hmm. God, Harry Shearer, uh, you yeah. know, The Simpsons and uh, Spinal Tap, said mm -hmm. the thing. He says that comedians do what they do in a sense because it gives them control. So when they're on the stage, they can control a reaction. And that gives them a sort of sense of empowerment that maybe they don't necessarily have in day-to-day in -day life. You know, when you have that microphone and the spotlight on you, um, if you're a good comedian, you have full control of the audience and of what they can say to you and what you can say back to them. So it's, I mean, part of what comedians do, I think, is having that control. You know, it's a means of having that control over their their lives. And Joe Dapato is, I think, it's, I mean, he's quite vocal about it. You know, if you read the, this book, The Sick in the Head, he, he talks a lot about how this gives him a sense of control on stage, um, which is why, you know, some very shy comedians um appear the opposite the very opposite yeah bill hicks was actually the, a prime example do you remember bill hicks bill hicks was oh, he like yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. prime yeah, example yeah super quiet guy in person but then like you know on stage he was a maniac absolutely and i was thinking uh, uh rowan atkinson is another good example yep. mm -hmm. uh, who is incredibly shy in person and yet does all this wonderful slapstick comedy in real life and i've just finished reading the autobiography of bob mortimer have you mm. come across bob mortimer mm -mm, who's he um, yeah, yeah, a bit obscure, I suppose. Well, mm -hmm. Vic and Bob, huge here in the 90s and the 2000s. Um, and the double act, basically, a very surreal double act. 
And um, in his autobiography, he describes being extremely shy. But once he was involved in writing comedy, performing comedy, I mean, that sort of changed. And actually, it was a way for him to actually meet um, his partner because it gave him more confidence because he yeah. found that being famous meant that more women would approach him to talk to him. That's and a formula. There you go. And because mm -hmm. he was anyway, he could then actually use that humor in order to, you know, I hate to use the phrase, but it's evolutionary psychology. So attract a mate, basically. Yeah. Department, you know. Yeah, I used to do that when I was a kid, like because I was super shy and I felt like I was unattractive. Like when I became the class clown, I was like, great, people gravitate toward me. This shit works. And I remember when teachers would put me in other sections and then I would make other people laugh. It made me feel like in control. I was like, yes, you can't do anything to punish me. I will always find an audience. And I love that. Yeah. And it's sort of reinforcing as well, you know, going back to what you're saying. I mean, I know uh, Stephen Colbert you know, described the sound of audience laughter as being like sizzling bacon. Mm. You know, it's like bacon frying and you can't discount that as well. The sort of positive reinforcement you get through somebody laughing at what you're saying because you want them to laugh and, and applauding as well uh, what you're saying because you want them uh, to laugh. I mean, that that is a that's a powerful, not aphrodisiac. That's the wrong word, but it's mm -hmm. quite a powerful drug because it's reinforcing. You know, yeah. it makes you feel validated. It makes you feel wanted um, yeah. as well. And. One of the things we haven't touched on is sort of how we measure things like sense of humor. And one of the one of the primary measures of measuring sense of humor um, is, a, is a questionnaire called the Humor Styles Questionnaire. Um, mm. And it, it measures four types of sense of humor or humor styles, I should say. And one of them is affiliative, um, you know, which is using humor to sort of um, to bond with other people. Uh, the other one is um, self-enhancing which is the the ability the, the use of humor to make other people like you. There's yeah. also self-defeating, I think it's fairly self-explanatory, and aggressive. Yeah. aggressive yeah. So there are four humor styles. And I think that the top two, the, the two positive ones, the, the two first ones I mentioned, um, are very much what you know possibly drives a comedian to to do what they do. You know, oh, and, and you know, it's interesting that you say that going back to the topic of Roseanne Barr. I mean, the thing that made her famous in the, what is it, like late mid 80s, late 80s was because at the time, like housewives weren't comedians. So here she was like a housewife in rural America, you know, flyover country, as you'd call it. Nobody knows what's going on there. Nobody seems to really care. And here she is. And she's exactly saying what's on everybody's, but well, females, you know, the, the housewives, what's on their minds in those kind of rural areas. So she kind of blew up because everybody's like, oh, my God, I am exactly like Roseanne Barr. I yeah, she revolutionized comedy. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think you're absolutely right there. Maybe not the housewife, because I think if Carol Carol Burnett, you know, back in the sort of sixties and seventies, hmm. uh, was I, I suppose a real breakout female comedian in in the states. But I think you're right with Rosanna. I don't think it was necessarily she was a housewife because she worked. I yeah. think what, what you had there was you had a character who was, I mean, in the US you call them blue collar workers. Yeah. Uh, uh, or the middle class and here we'd call them working class you know you saw somebody in a sitcom that you would not we've never had seen in a sitcom before a bit like Archie Archie's bunker I suppose in a way right. um, but to have a woman in that position in a central role with her name um, in the title of the sitcom was really unusual and I suppose you, you you could argue that that was sort of, you know, empowering in some way but it certainly made you it exposed you to a certain slice of American life that you hadn't been exposed to before. You know, it's much more realistic and much more realistic in its portrayal of family dynamics and the unpleasantness of family dynamics. And you're right, I mean, very little of that had been done um, before, you know, Rosanne Barr um, 
especially by a woman comedian. It had been right. done with, uh, you know, male comedians in a way, I suppose, uh, but certainly not in the way that she did. So, yeah, no, absolutely right. Um, so it opened the doors to another, it gave you a glimpse onto another world that television tended not to privilege or to, to prioritize. Um, you know, and now, of course, I mean, you know, all of that has changed yeah. to some extent. You know, you and, can, and I no, absolutely. It's definitely changed. And, and what's interesting, I'm really happy that you brought up uh, uh, comedic styles, actually. Um, I was curious to see how to or what style is optimal, I would say, in terms of uh, health, because I know comedy and health go yeah. together. And uh, it's I, I know for like from reading the book that, for example, having a uh, self-defeating sort of style, like self-deprecating humor, uh, even though there's a utility to it and it's a, it's a great form of comedy uh it might not lead to good health outcomes uh yeah no, no absolutely true. and i know you guys do a lot of work on sort of psychological well-being and you know the the, the factors that can improve psychological well-being uh, or even impair it and therefore how can you avoid the things that impair it and the the, the humor styles literature is interesting because you're right people with self-defeating or aggressive humor styles well, let's take self-defeating. You're absolutely right. If you have a self-defeating humor style predominantly, um, then you tend to score low on a range of measures and not in a good way. So, mm -hmm. you know, you score low, high on sadness. Oh, I'm talking about low. So you score low on happiness. Let's put it that mm -hmm. way. Low on happiness, low on stability, uh, low on psychological well-being, maybe even low on um, physical health as well. Whereas mm. if your dominant styles are those of affiliation and self-enhancement, then you find the opposite. There you tend to find that people experience less stress, they experience less anxiety, they um, experience greater psychological well-being, they have greater social support, you know, their social interactions are also more positive and also more frequent uh, as mm. well. The mm. one personality style that doesn't seem to have any effect on these things is aggressive personality style. So that seems to have very little effect on your psychological well-being either negatively or or positively but you're right there is that link between you know whether it's a correlation i mean it's not causal clearly because yeah, yeah. you, you couldn't work out whether you know it's a cause or an effect or a combination of the two but there is a correlation definitely between scoring high on those two humor styles and having a positive um, psychological uh, sense of self and having great psychological uh, well-being now i suppose the question is mm. well would you not do you just have those styles i mean how did they develop how did you get to this point that you are so equanimous and well balanced and, and all the rest of it and if if it was a natural thing okay but if it isn't and you were taught maybe to develop these styles how could you be taught them maybe to produce these other knock-on positive effects which is you know having psychological well-being so maybe it's a case if you take self-defeating nobody's done this by the way but if you took somebody with a self-defeating uh, humor style and they wanted to change that because that's the important thing i mean they may be like this dispositionally and they may be quite happy being self-defeating regardless of the consequences negatively for their behavior but say they mm -hmm. wanted to change well, how would you change the self-defeating style into one that's more affiliative or you know self-enhancing nobody's tried to to do that um uh probably for good reason uh but it's uh yeah but so that's the research on um humor stars and well-being and then if you think of psychotherapy just was there's another context where yes. you may think humor may be appropriate but most people think isn't mm. uh there's very little research on it 
first of all. Uh, I use I use it I use it a lot in my session. So my yeah my patients seem to love it yeah so if we can't joke oh, they just yeah they actually don't like that yeah so they'll some of them have even told me they're like i don't like like the seriousness of it or when it's like ah, too serious yeah what? in long periods because they're like i'm in my head all day like i i don't need to kind of pay for this like to bring this in and just have like this kind of dreary session the entire time so obviously i mean this is kind of like bits and pieces i mean it's not the point is not to just you know uh kind of mock and deride and then you know kind of like a mask right important feelings but the idea is like yeah once in a while injecting humor probably Probably is pretty helpful. Yeah, and I I think you're right, and also in terms of how you do it as well. Yeah, it comes back to the uh, use of humor in learning thing again. Yeah. As long as the humor uh, and the the lightheartedness is judicious, yeah, and it's used appropriately, then I think then it could be beneficial. Um, you're going to be quite depressed by this though, Leon. So bear with me. Cover your Shoot. ears. There's very little research on it, which is, you know, why you, 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 you regard this research with kid gloves. So treated circumspectly. So what they, what, what they've done is they've, they've either asked patients about their own experience with their therapist and therapists who use humor. Mm -hmm. or they've uh, shown um, participants uh, video clips of a therapist with a client and the therapist either uses humor or doesn't. Mm -hmm. <laughs> In both of those cases, uh, the people who watch the video clip um, prefer the humorous therapist less, mm. would not want to um, uh, recruit the services of, of that um, therapist. Um, and then with the, the clients who had a therapist who are humorous, Again, they were less disposed to that therapist. Mm. You get the opposite pattern. Again, this is based on two studies, right? So read into that, you know, what you will. But the, you get the flip side though with um, uh, GPs, uh, sort of doctors. Uh, mm. what, do you, what do you call GPs in the States? Are they called GPs? No, yeah, general, general practitioner, same thing, same thing. Yeah. 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 Um, mm -hmm. So there, if the GP uses humor in, you know, consultation context, people do go away feeling more positive. Than mm. if they go to a GP who who doesn't, you know. So that's an interesting flip, I think. But again, as I said, you know, it's based on very few um, studies. But there are other studies, and again, few that do indicate that if you ask people, would they like a therapist who was more lighthearted than than serious? Again, their self reports suggest that they would like somebody who is, you know, not poem faced, not completely serious, and you know, did inject a bit of lightheartedness into what can be a pretty fraught and emotionally draining um, interaction, you know, as you, yeah. you probably know from your, from your own experience. Yeah, I think that maybe the interpretation is something along the lines of the, maybe they don't want the other person, the therapist, obviously, in this case, uh, devaluing their experiences, or maybe it can feel that way. So I could see that, like, you know, if you're telling somebody, somebody something obviously serious and poor and some sort of trauma, and then, you know, the person is kind of making like light of it, that's a little bit different than I think making light of, I don't know, some sort of everyday flub or mistake, or like I would say, like when I would, you know, use a joke with somebody and I'm trying to kind of diminish their flaws to say that, yeah, yeah, yeah this mistake that you made, it's actually not as problematic as you think it is. So, I mean, just like with anything else there has to be some tact and you know i'm just, oh. so I was just about to say you've touched on something really important and that is because a lot of these studies you know they, they look at variable a they look at variable b they look at uh, dependent measure z um and then look at the outcome and human research is an interesting field of research for lots, lots of different reasons but the one reason it's interesting is that a lot of it isn't very well conducted 
Mm. Uh, it's, it's not, you know, it's not a mainstream branch of psychology. Um, in fact, in the 1960s, I mean, there were reviews showing that, you know, psychology had a tenderness taboo. That most of psychology was focused on the bad things, you know, fear, mm -hmm. right. and that's what psychologists would study. And I suppose you say for good reason, because those are things we need to understand more, you know, fear, danger, disgust, and so on, because the benefits of knowing why these things happen and why we react to them is, is more important than happiness and joy and all the rest of it. So after about the 1960s, things began to, to change, but humour is still regarded as being one of those subjects that very few people, very few psychologists study. In fact, if you look at psychologists across the world that study humour, yeah. um, we've got two journals, three journals, three journals, um, academic journals devoted to comedy and humour. Um, wow. Very, very few. Yeah, are you surprised? No, no, I'm actually surprised that there are any. Oh, I That's actually really cool. That's actually really cool. Get <laughs> that subscription out immediately. There's one called, I think there's a European Journal of Comedy, there's Humour, um, mm -hmm. colon, um, uh, uh, the Journal of Humour, I forgot what it's called now. But anyway, mm. that's the main one that's been going for ages. Uh, wow. There's a British one called Comedy Studies, just slightly broader, and it brings in the humanities and, you know, all sorts. Um, but, yeah, there's very little um, empirical uh, research on, on, the, on the field. And then because of that, that's sort of fairly, what's the best way of putting it, uh, sort of almost like professional amateur way of approaching this topic. Uh, a lot of the research... In the early days was not very good a lot of the mm. work on personality and comedians in the early stages was not very good because it was based on psychoanalysis and mm. psychological thinking and you know things like the rorschach and thematic perception which you know whatever you think of them are no measures of personality and not in that context and that's changed i mean it's become a lot more professional now so you get more psychologists now doing proper empirical work on interesting topics but it's still regarded as a bit of a niche field as is and i think this is an interesting parallel um horror studies you know <laughs> what people respond to horror film and th there are lots of weird parallels between horror research and comedy research and going back to what i was going to say um leon about your experience it depends on what you mean by comedy and it depends on what you mean by horror because in these studies somebody puts in a bit of comedy puts in a, what they think is a horror film, they look at the effect of that on this variable, and then they produce the result. Of course, not maybe acknowledging that, well, this is just one type of horror. This is just one type of comedy. Not all people may, one, regard this as funny or regard mm. this as horrifying. So what you class as being humorous or, or comic or um, a horror film um, will depend on the sample, you know, that you're you're presenting your, your, your data, uh, so your materials, too. And again, this is a big issue in both horror research and humor research is using comedy that people will genu genuinely perceive as being quite funny, which means that if you do this sort of research, you have to use comedy that has some broadish appeal. You know, it can't be niche and it can't be broad in the sort of truest sense, you know, and it can't be sexist either or racist. Right. I was thinking that too. Of other, yeah, schema and lots of other thoughts and uh, and stuff. So it's, you know, the research has been bedecked by these, uh, they're not intractable problems, but they're still problems that, you know, you need to acknowledge because, you know, one person's comedy is not uh, somebody else's, which is why when I do this research uh, with, say, jokes and sketches, <clears throat> I mean, I try and make sure that there's either validation for their use, and that is, you know, they're popular. 
you know, they're in the charts or they're in the, they've made lots of money in the box office or whatever. Or if they're jokes, then you make sure that a pilot study rates them beforehand. And right. then you take the funniest jokes that that pilot group has, has chosen. Because then you can more or less guarantee that your sample, by and large, may find those jokes funny. And about 10% won't because there are so many individual differences in their response to humour. Um, and yeah. no one person will find, well, no one joke will be found funny by everybody. Um, right. So, so in other words, what I think you're saying is know your audience. <laughs> uh, That's so, a I could have spared. I could have stopped my Pepsi Max at the time. <laughs> yes, in, in, in short. But, um, but, but do allow me that whinge about the nature of methodological problems <laughs> of course, in, in right. human research and, and uh, comedy. And also how it's done as well. Yeah. It's interesting because, you know, you know, we think of studies being done and you get the finding and you think, well, that's very interesting. And often you don't think of how that finding has been produced. Right. And if you look at things like, I mean, laughter and um, laughter's contagion is a very interesting topic. You know, this idea mm. that if you add laughter to something, people will find it funny and people will laugh more. And, you know, at, at, at the core of people's prejudice towards canned laughter, for example, you know, is the idea that, but why is there canned laughter on this comedy? I don't find it at all funny. But the thing is, though, if you do add laughter to comedy, people do find it funnier. I mean, that's yeah. almost every research study has found that adding a bit of laughter to, you know, a joke, even if it's just moderately funny, will uh, lead to that joke being rated as being being amusing. Um, huh. So, but, but the way in which you study that will may involve things like cameras and audio recording. And mm -hmm. we, we did a study where... We examined whether having a camera um, recording you as you were listening to, reading or watching some comedy would actually affect not just your cognitive response to the comedy, whether you find it funny or enjoyable, but also your behavioural response, you know, whether you'd smile more or whether you'd laugh more. And what was interesting was that whereas the cognitive variables were unaffected by the camera, so with the comedy, people still found it funny when they rated, you know, the, the, the materials for funniness. They'd always give high funniness ratings to the comedy they were reading, listening to or watching. But their behavioural response would change if they thought they were being filmed. So that was inhibited. So during the, um, I mean, there was there was more laughter during the audio and the video conditions and very little laughter when people read the script of the same mm -hmm. comedy, just literally the script. And the wow. script was available um, sort of commercially. So it wasn't as if we transcribed something and had them read it. It was available as a script book. Um, but we found that when they uh, were listened and when they watched the, the comedy and they had the camera in front of them, then they would laugh less, uh, uh, not necessarily smile less, but they would certainly laugh less. So, you know, being filmed in some way had an inhibitory effect. And again, you know, those are the sort of hmm. things we don't necessarily acknowledge when you, you know, read these studies. You know, but how, how did this person find this finding what did they do and what things could have affected you know um how people laughed when they were taking part in this uh, in this study yeah oh. I mean, contagion i mean you know the, the use of laughter in comedy is, is another fascinating sort of area i mean that was my undergraduate thesis um, oh because there was a big debate cool. at the time about whether men and women responded to laughter differently again going back to the sex difference you know some studies had said that girls and women would laugh more if there was laughter accompanying a piece of comedy, um, whereas men didn't. Uh, but women 
and men would still give the same funniness rating. So behaviorally, women behave differently, behaviorally, women behave differently, whereas the men were slightly more inhibited. So what I did, but the research again, had so many methodological problems, you know, sometimes they'd have the experimenter telling the jokes. Now, guys, you've been to university, yes? You've been to college. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. Now, apart from that one teacher that you mentioned, Leon, who was a, a cracking funny guy, mm -hmm. uh, most of them, I mean, you wouldn't really put on stage at Jonglers or the Comedy right. Center because, yeah. you know, their delivery is not the best. Yeah. Right? So you had things like this, you know, the, the experimenter telling the jokes. Um, so what I decided to do was I took a, a radio comedy, topical radio comedy show at the time, and I took out the short sketches and one-liners accompanied by the greatest live audience laughter in that show. And so I created two sets of stimuli, one with the sketches and the jokes with the laughter on, and one with the laughter taken off with gaps where the laughter should have been. And then asked groups of men and women to rate the comedy as I recorded them with a camera and an audio uh, device, uh, but with a camera they couldn't see. So there was like a two-way mirror, but the camera was behind the two-way mirror. So they knew they were being recorded, but they couldn't see the camera, which I think would, would help them you know, enjoy the comedy more. And what we found was that the audience laughter made people laugh more and smile more. Hmm. And they also found the comedy funnier and more enjoyable, but hmm. there was no sex difference. So both uh, men and women laughed more, and they also found the comedy funnier in the presence of audience laughter. And my theory for that uh, was that the laughter act as some sort of attentional marker. It was drawing your attention to the fact that this thing you've just heard is funny, and therefore you might find it funny too, and people laugh to it, and therefore you might laugh as well. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the, you, you could test that, nobody has tested it, but you could test that in different ways by using jokes or sketches that really aren't that funny, and adding laughter to them and seeing the effect of that laughter and whether people you know find the material funnier with the laughter than than not um but uh, no one's done it and uh, that was oh. what, 20 years ago 30 years ago oh wow you know what sucks yeah, there's so much material think my age here gentlemen i'm sorry no 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 worries uh, you know what's interesting there, there's actually so much material that we could still cover from the book i'm, I'm actually curious uh how are you on on time do, do you feel like you get to handle maybe yeah, fine yeah, yeah. Alan, I'm not that great on time. No, no, no. How about five more minutes? Okay, we can do five. Okay, minutes. okay, good. So I have a question about yeah, the dark. What was your phrase? Hang on, what was your phrase again, Leon? Know your audience. Okay. Know your audience. <laughs> Every question you're going to ask me, I'll simply respond with, "Well, know your audience." Fair, <laughs> fair. <laughs> so out of curiosity for for the dark side of uh humor yes. right and so i'm curious how that relates to the uh the dark tetrad and also maybe uh, if you could speak on what the dark tetrad is as well yeah sure i mean the dark tetrad is sort of interesting it was well in psychology i mean psychology is an interesting history in terms of studying personality um and the the, the current thinking in psychology is that uh, our personality is made up of five dimensions uh each dimension is a continuum so you're more or less on on these it's called the ocean model because it refers to openness to experience let me see if i get this Thank right you. openness to experience conscientiousness extroversion agreeableness and neuroticism yes spoken like <laughs> um so that's the dominant um theorizing in psychology at the moment so back in i think it was around about 2002 um, Paulus and 
Williams um, proposed that in addition to these, there were sort of slightly darker um, personality traits and they called it originally the dark triad. Mm -hmm. uh, the dark triad would reflect, you know, the darker aspects of personality like psychopathy, Machiavellianism and narcissism. Mm. And I think at least one of those is self-explanatory. So narcissism is, you know, having um, a high sense of ego, self-identity, self-worth, thinking of more important than others, uh, wanting to be the center of attention all the time, you know, in an extreme way. I mean, there's a pathological uh, traits. Right. Uh, Machiavellianism is somebody who is very manipulative and underhand and tries to get people to behave in a way that would benefit them, you know, named after Ma Nicola Machiavelli and, um, you know, the Black Prince. Uh, and then psychopathy. Psychopathy is much more interesting because this is a clinical concept that's been used in different ways. And um, psychopathy refers to a, uh, a disposition or a set of traits that uh, describes somebody who is remorseless, guiltless, very manipulative, uh, lacking in empathy, but also considerably charming. Um, so psychopaths, for genuine psychopaths, for example, can come across as being quite normal individuals, except they are completely violent and murderous. I mean, they would think nothing about killing you or causing mm. you harm. But ostensibly, they are very charming, very plausible, but they're very good at identifying your own weaknesses. Right. Um, and they, they're, also, they're also very keen on eye contact. So you find that psychopaths tend to maintain eye contact for slightly too long, um, so that's one way <laughs> to a psychopath. Um, I did, oh, I'm not sure whether I should say this to you. I did used to work with somebody who used to maintain eye contact for much longer than this person should have, and it was a really odd experience. So when mm. I give a lecture on I give a lecture on the neuropsychology of psychopathy, like do the brains of psychopaths differ from those of non-psychopaths? Um uh, and I I I exemplify this by going to somebody in the audience and just talking to them and maintaining eye contact constantly. And if you do that, it's really awkward. Mm -hmm. I mean, the person just wants to look away. Um, and anyway, that's one feature of the psychopath going down a sort of psychopathic garden path here, uh, psycho garden pathing. Um, so <laughs> that's what a psychopath is. So those are the dark, uh, that's the dark tribe. And then they added a few years later um, sadism to make it the dark tetrad, you know, and sadism is taking pleasure out of somebody else's misfortune, right. psychological or physical, and enjoying inflicting pain on somebody else and deriving enjoyment uh, from that. And there's been some research on whether those personality traits correlate with certain humor styles. And as you might predict, they do, and it's in the direction you might think it goes in, and that is, People who score high on psychopathy, particularly, um, the traits more generally, but particularly psychopathy, are those most likely to use um, aggressive humour. Mm. Um, people who score high on Machiavellianism as well also score, score very um, highly on um, aggressive humour as a learning style. So there is that connection. There's a bit of there's a lot of debate in the field about whether these four traits are genuine, or whether they really variants of the same thing which is psychopathy right. uh, the current thinking is because when you do all these correlational studies what normally comes out is psychopathy you mm. know psychopathy correlated x y z a b c or d so this seems to be the dominant um the darkest personality trait and the other mm. dark 
traits may be part of psychopathy because they're all involved so psychopathy tends to be the the one that is most correlated with you know the dark use of humor using aggressive humor using violent um humor and demeaning yeah yeah so yeah. that's one where you definitely couldn't answer depends on your audience <laughs> i love that <laughs> such a great point <laughs> yes. that was really great that was actually perfect wow the perfect ending all right alan final questions before we go man ah uh, yes so if we wanted to follow you follow your work and and of course buy the book uh where could we oh, do that thank you very much alan yes i mean christmas is coming probably um yes so uh, and what and I, I, I think it's 2023 <laughs> <laughs> leon come on plan ahead man it's very important uh yes it's the uh thank you guys by the way for uh for talking about the book and actually for inviting me on as well absolutely, uh, absolutely. and you know um love talking about psychology and comedy and uh if you want to talk about some other things about comedy then get in touch but yes the book is the Psychology of Comedy is published by Routledge. Um, I think it's about £11.99, which is about $15. Don't know what the exchange rate is at the moment. It's probably I have cheap. no idea. It is here. And yeah, if you want to follow me, um, I'm on Twitter, at least for as long as Twitter exists and still hasn't collapsed under the rubble of uh, a, a psychopathic, <laughs> uh, Machiavellian, narcissistic, <laughs> sadistic, I don't know what to say. <laughs> as long as it still exists, I'm there at that Neil. Martin, N-E-I-L-M-A-R-T-I-N. So if you want to get in touch with me, uh, follow me, um, then then do. It's uh, it's it's quite a ride. Um, so yeah. So thank you guys for that, and um, you've been great fun. I've enjoyed it. Absolutely, so we love this as well. This is such a great podcast. Thank you so much, Neil. Yeah, much appreciated. All right, talk to you soon, man. Okay. Bye, folks. Bye. <laughs> All right. Honestly, uh, that was the most entertaining podcast in a long time. Yeah. Yeah. So everyone, if you want to follow us, you can follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook, on Instagram, and on Twitter. We're at Seize underscore podcast. Like, subscribe, hit, hit the, the bell, bell on, on YouTube. YouTube. Thank you again so much for watching and see you all next time.